Hello and welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, which we call Too Fat to Fly, we're going to tell the incredible story of how big rig super speedway truck racing got started in America in the late 70s and early 1980s. It was in defiance of the government, in defiance of the tire companies, in defiance of even the Teamsters, but it came off and began a 20-year run as a popular motorsport in this country. Too Fat to Fly, it's an incredible story. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is brought to you by Gear Vendors Overdrives. For decades, Gear Vendors has been producing the highest quality, highest horsepower handling overdrives on the market. Easily installed behind a variety of manual and automatic transmissions, a Gear Vendors Overdrive is a transformative piece of driveline technology that takes even the hardest core 3,000 horsepower street machines and turns them into highway cruisers. The drastic increase in drivability and fuel economy are only a couple of the benefits that a Gear Vendors Overdrive unit can offer you and your hot rod. Check them out at GearVendors.com. And remember, GearVendors is the only overdrive that's guaranteed even while racing. Visit GearVendors.com to learn more. Green flag is out. They're underway. And take a look at the diesel smoke as they hit those dangerous curves here at Atlanta. Safe start, everybody through turn number one. Jim Bickle of Akron, Indiana, your quick leader. Bickle has jumped out in front. Charlie Baker's in second place. Jack Seffler driving in a third. Doyle Montgomery on the outside in the fourth position. On the back straightaway for the first time and getting to full speed. Right up there to 122 miles an hour. Huffing and puffing, number 76, Jim Bickle. Puts the old pedal to the metal. You know something, Ken? First time they race, I noticed that the truckers weren't getting in close and dicey. Watch them now. They're starting to really close up on the back of one another. Number 39, Charlie Baker comes to the inside. As they come around a complete lap, number one, it's wheel to wheel. Baker is down on the inside. Charlie Baker thunders through, and he's taking the lead. Bickle dropping back into second. He may drop to third here. Baker is your leader, and coming up through is Richard Craig. Craig waiting a moment through that first lap. Then he stood on it, and here comes number one, Craig. He is blitzed by two trucks. Bickle on the outside, going back into second, going for the lead. Talk about racing wheel to wheel. Look at this battle for the front, a cluster of trucks in turn number three. And that is the beginning of a show I'm calling Too Fat to Fly, which is going to tell the story, the incredible, wacky, off-the-wall story of the beginning of super speedway big rig racing in America circa 1979 and 1980. We're going to tell this story with news reporting from vintage newspapers. We're going to tell it with interviews from the drivers who were there, like Charlie Baker, the announcer for these first couple of races, a guy named Berserko Bobby Dorr. And you're going to learn more than you probably ever thought you would about the early days of big rig racing in America. As we know, big rig racing does continue today in a smaller fashion. There's a lot of short track series out there. There's the Bandit Big Rig series that races on uh, asphalt and dirt tracks uh, of the short variety. Uh, Of course, in Europe, big rig racing is still a a thing. They mostly road course race those trucks and they are fully developed, you know, racing vehicles. They're huge and they're awesome, um, but they are definitely not over the road trucks. When we talk about the genesis of big rig racing in America, we are talking about working trucks from the highway that were hot rodded that in 1979 gathered at the Atlanta Motor Speedway for an event called the Great American Truck Race or the Bobtail 200 that was promoted by a guy named Jim Donahoe who was out of Nashville, Tennessee. All of these people, all of these players are going to factor into this story, which, as I mentioned in the opening of the show, 
pitted truckers against the government and against tire companies and against the trucking industry itself. It really is a story that I was totally unaware of until I started researching this and becomes very interesting and colorful for the fact that Jim Donahoe was a brilliant promoter who took what could have been a disaster and turned it into absolute gold, and he made a ton of money in the process. So let's get to the genesis of big rig racing in America. Where did it start? Not just on the speedways, but where did big rig racing actually begin? You know, the strange but simple answer to that question is New Jersey. Truck racing as we know it in America, big rig racing, if you will, was drag racing. That's where um, uh, these guys really started to kind of show their competitive spirit. And you had people like Tyrone Malone and, and a handful of others, but mostly Tyrone Malone, um, was a guy who was sponsored by Bandag, had the Bandag boss and the, the Bandit and the Super Boss and all this, these other cool hot-rodded trucks that he would take out and do burnouts with and spin donuts. And um, in some ways, that, that was the first, and his trucks were the first kind of overtly hot-rodded big rigs, but they were by no means the first hot-rodded big rigs. In fact, just like anything else, guys would turn the wick up on these big trucks, especially during the 1970s, to uh, make better time on the highway. And of course, you didn't want to have the slowest truck at the truck stop. So guys would put bigger turbos on, they would upgrade injectors, they would mess with the fuel rack, they would do all different types of things to make these trucks more powerful. And when you went to the drag strip, you would find out exactly who had the most powerful big rig around. So when we talk about, you know, this this kind of speedway racing sport, we actually have to go to the drag strip. And to go to the drag strip, we have to talk about one of the guys who was really there in the ground floor of all of this. His name is Berserko Bobby Dorr, and for those of you that are drag racing fans, you know that Berserko Bob has had uh, an incredible life in the sport of drag racing. He hung out with guys like Jungle Jim Lieberman back in the day, was a uh, big-time force at Englishtown Raceway Park for many, many years during that place's heyday. He was an announcer there, and eventually he would become the announcer for the first couple of these great American truck racing events. And the American Truck Racing Association with Jim Donahoe, and characters that we'll talk about later on in the show. But first, let's talk a little bit about Big Rig Racing itself, and we're going to hear directly from the man. Berserko Bobby Dorr tells us about the ground floor of Big Rig competition starting in New Jersey. The first U.S. diesel truck in nationals in 1976. And uh, um, it was a, Vinny Knapp just said, let's give it a try and see what happens, and it exploded. We had I, I, probably 400 trucks there, the first one. But then after that, um, we had that was in the spring. Then we had one in the fall, and we were overwhelmed. We didn't get out of there till like three o'clock in the morning. Place is a mob scene. Matter of fact, the next day we had a regular drag race schedule. And we couldn't run because there was so much diesel fuel on the exhaust on the. On the well, you know, the, the guy that put it together was named Jim Donahoe, and then his uh, competition guy, um, Pete Keller. They're both old NASCAR guys, and they ran NASCAR races. And, uh, and this is going back, you know, in the '60s. And uh, they figured they could do it. And so they uh, put together this organization and gave it a try, and, and it just went rocket ship. It was unbelievable. Uh, after the first couple truck races, Overdrive Magazine, which was a big trucker magazine back there, came and sponsored it. And uh, Donahoe was looking at truck racing, so he came to the track, the Overdrive Truckers Championship, and he heard me announce, and then he just went crazy. He says, i got to hire this guy. <laughs> I, I had belief in him. I, I saw how they um, operated at the at the drag races at Englishtown and you know they were professional and everything and they had money behind them and they were ready to go 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 so I said yeah I'll go I'll join give me a, give it a try who knows they had they had a good operation I mean 
logistically run into races and the crew and everything. And they, they did it well. It was real professional. And so with that introduction from Berserko, Bob, we really need to talk about Jim Donahoe and who this guy was and how he managed to pull off, um, not only pull off, but uh, but thrive in an environment that would have uh, just squashed a lot of people like a bug. Jim Donahoe was, was almost born to be the guy to create this basically brand new motorsport in 1979. And he was born into it and born to create it because in 1948, uh, when he was born, his dad began promoting stock car races in the Nashville, Tennessee area, up to the point where when Jim was a young man in his 20s and he was 30 years old, basically, when this American Truck Racing Association got off the ground, um, Donahoe was a guy who uh, had been involved in operating the Nashville Speedway, which was a NASCAR track, kind of a very well-known racetrack, still is, down there in Nashville, Tennessee, for many, many years. And... They promoted stock car races and all kinds of other events. He knew what it took to put on a successful event. He knew the logistics. He knew the things that needed to be done to make an event work. And he also knew that there was value in going outside the box a little bit. Uh, famously, Jim Donahoe was responsible for a 1975 music album called NASCAR Goes Country. And you can read about this. You can actually listen to it. This was an album of country songs performed by the likes of people like David Pearson, Richard Petty, Cale Yarbrough, uh, the Allison Brothers, and it is as bad as you think it would be. Uh, it did not sell very well. Um, it was an experiment kind of gone awry. NASCAR actually made a short documentary about making that album. But uh, some Jim Donahoe, a showman, a promoter, um, and certainly somebody who, once he got his hooks into looking at truck racing in Englishtown, New Jersey, on the drag strip, understood, hey, if this is that popular at the drag strip, imagine how popular it will be at a speedway. So you can totally see how his brain's working here. He knows the speedway business probably better than most people in the country at that point. And he knows the fact that these English town events are crushing it. And he figures if you combine the two things, we give another element of racing here and uh, we really get a show to put on. So on the date of October 3rd, 1978, a Tennessee corporation is formed called the American Truck Racing Association, formed by James L. Donahoe, kind of our hero here. On June 14th, 1979, a Georgia corporation, a branch of the American Truck Racing Association is formed, and that's just a couple of days ahead of what would be the very first race at Atlanta International Raceway, as it was known then, Atlanta Motor Speedway, as it is known now. But a lot of stuff happened between October 3rd, 1978 and June 17th, 1979, when the race was going to go off. And one of the things we need to talk about is how the planning came together, how the promotion came together, and how everybody freaked out at the notion of big rig trucks racing around a super speedway. So let's talk a little bit about the American Truck Racing Association itself and its quote-unquote rules. So I have in front of me a membership guideline kind of form here. And if you wanted to sign up to be a part of the American Truck Racing Association, these are the guidelines. And I quote, Any professional truck driver is eligible to register for competition provided he or she has been gainfully employed as a truck driver for the past three years and meets the other safety requirements of the ATRA. The type of trucks that may enter ATRA-sanctioned events are the 14,500-pound minimum weight class 8 trucks with no engine modifications. Diesel fuel is the only designated fuel. And then for more information, you could write to them in, in Nashville, Tennessee, and they'd send your rule book and some other stuff. It cost about $50 a year to be a member, depending on what you were um, trying to do. If you're a mechanic, it was 45 If you're a driver, it was 50 And 
you know, the membership got you, uh, you know, what a lot of membership did back in the day. You got a patch and you got probably a pin of some sort. And then you got the newsletter and all the associated stuff. And you had to be a licensed ATRA member to participate in any of their events, especially this first one. Now, the first event planning begins in earnest in early of 1979. Donahoe is promoting this event, going to various trucking shows and expositions and trying to get some stories placed in magazines. At that time, there were a lot of trucking publications. There was a lot of, um, you know, you could, magazines, if you will, newsletters, stuff like that. And this is where we start to see the clouds of discontent begin to swirl around this event. Believe it or not, the trucking magazines, by and large, aside for basically one, weren't just ignoring Jim Donahoe. They began to actually work against him. And Jim Donahoe is the type of guy that is not going to back down from this idea, especially an idea he feels like he can make a bunch of money on and an idea that he knows will be very popular if he can actually get it to fruition. So we've gotten Bobby Doerr's perspective on Jim Donahoe. Now we need to bring in Charlie Baker. Charlie Baker is the winningest driver in the history of the American Truck Racing Association. His career spanned from the very first race in 1979 to the very last race in the early 90s. He effectively drove in basically every single event that this organization ever had, and he won more events than anybody. He also had a lot of dealings with Jim Donahoe. So we understand from one side, Berserko Bob saw the smooth, slick Jim Donahoe come observe the drag races, and hire him to go racing. Now we listen to the promoter from the racer's side, and Charlie Baker had, well, a slightly different experience. No disrespect to Jim, but Jim was a shyster. I mean, Jim <laughs> Jim, Jim knew how to manipulate, and, I mean, he was a showman. Yeah. He, he really was. You know, he, he liked to put on the spectacle, and, um, and he was pretty successful at it. I mean, um, his dad actually... I guess back years and years ago, he either owned the Nashville Speedway or he or he leased it or okay. had something to do with the Nashville Speedway. So Jim had a little background in promoting through working with his dad in that racetrack. So and then you know, Overdrive Magazine stood behind Jim in advertising this thing because you know, Overdrive Magazine was for the truckers and they were against the you know, the uh, energy crisis and all the, the things that were being imposed on the trucking industry back then. So they were behind this 100% in, number one, because they wanted to support the trucking thing, but they were also against the government. And, you know, they put all these article, articles out about how the fuel protest goes up and smoke at the truck race and, <laughs> and uh, you, know, you know, nobody got hurt or nobody got killed and, and um so I think over between overdrive and him, and then of course you know Hal Needham and the filming of that thing, and it just um, he he became pretty successful out of it. Now he had some bad times. I mean, there were some times that that uh, he had a little trouble getting money out of Jim. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll just say that politely. <laughs> he he was one of them uh, flamboyant promoters and. Uh, you just have to know Jim. I mean, honest to God, he was he was a piece of work. Which is, by and large, the reason this whole thing actually worked. And understand, Charlie Baker wasn't being disrespectful there. Anybody that's been involved in motorsports has has worked with the promoters and worked with people who are these audacious, over-the-top, 
you know, publicity hounds that do anything and everything to promote their events. It doesn't matter what motorsport you're in. And it is both their gift and it is both their gift and curse, I guess you'd say, where you have to have this kind of incredible iron will to do this type of stuff. But oftentimes you have to you have to kind of overstep the boundaries of either good taste or sometimes even truth to actually get the job done. And um, to say that Jim wasn't afraid to do that is an understatement and nor is any highly successful promoter afraid to do that because otherwise they wouldn't be highly successful promoters. So we know who Jim Donahoe is now. We know that he has formed this organization in late 1978. He has begun in earnest to promote this event in 1979. One thing I do not know is why he chose Atlanta. I don't know if he had a pre-existing relationship with the racetrack. It certainly was one of the most high-profile NASCAR tracks in the country, a big uh, banked oval track. They knew they were going to be able to run some speed there. And it was just this, uh, this kind of wild idea. And we need to talk a little bit about how the word got out. You know, you don't have the Internet then. You basically have newspapers. You have these, these industry publications. And you've heard the name Overdrive Magazine used twice now. And the reason you're basically only going to hear about Overdrive Magazine in terms of supporting this event is because they were the only trucking magazine that chose to support the event. As we're going to learn, every single force in the country and in the industry of trucking turned against Jim Donahoe and turned against this particular 1979 race for reasons that seem outlandish and insane these days. But they all did it except for Overdrive Magazine. They somehow stuck to Jim Donahoe's program. They stood behind him. You mentioned Charlie Baker said they were a little bit of an outlaw publication. We talked about, or he talked about the fact that in 1979, obviously the country's in the middle of a fuel crisis, that the 55 mile an hour speed limits come out. There's a whole kind of, you know, cannonball run type of thing here where the nation is getting getting fed up. It's the uh, the end of the 1970s. It's been the decade of that kind of malaise decade is now being is often referred to as where things were tough and the, the country was kind of mired in this this tough economic place. And then the energy crises were happening a couple of times, of course, in the early 70s and then in 79. So we can look at the overriding kind of cultural factors that are a problem here. And then we'll get into the industry factors. But nonetheless, we are on a creeping path toward this first race. And word is starting to spread. And it's starting to spread to guys like Charlie Baker. How did he find out about it? Let's have him tell us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, this this all got started there. We used to do a lot of uh, truck drags and so forth, you know, the local truck shows and things like that. And and, um, I read an article in Overdrive magazine where they were going to get these guys together and run the Atlanta Motor Speedway. And I told my boss, um, Ed Frock from HM Kelly Incorporated, I said, we ought to go do that. And he looked at me like I had six eyes. And rightfully so, because at this point in history, nobody had ever done anything like this. So Charlie's boss ultimately relented, and they do go down to race. And we're going to talk about that when we get to that point. But we got to cover some ground here, because... The groundswell of bad news for Jim Donahoe begins in earnest in May of 1979, and it starts in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, May 10th of 1979, with a story that ran on the front page of the paper entitled, Promoter and Atlanta International Raceway Defend Bobtail 200 Truck Race, written by a guy named Al Smith, who was a uh, obviously a reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm going to read you this because um, it touches off a, a really wild series of events. So here we go. The head of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has asked the promoter of the Bobtail 200, a race for truck tractors without trailers, to cancel the event because she fears it could turn into a bloody spectacle. 
Joan Claybrook, in a letter to promoter Jim Donahoe, stated that due to the lack of safety precautions, she felt the alleged sporting event is nothing more than an opportunity for truck drivers to be killed. The 200-mile race, the first of its kind anywhere, is scheduled for June 17th at Atlanta International Raceway. Claybrook further stated in her letter that the rules did not require drivers to wear fire-retardant clothing, that no special gas tanks, roll bars, or tires were required. Donahoe, who was presently at Atlanta International Raceway conducting tire and safety tests for the event, took exception to Claybrook's statements and said he had never talked to her and that she had never seen a copy of his rulebook. I'm sorry, I didn't even know who the lady was, Donahoe said, or what her position was. When I first got the letter and saw her name, I thought she was somebody's secretary. We have new, had numerous tests here at the track and have had two mock races, and a 22-year-old girl won one of them. Getting someone killed is the furthest thing from my mind. The rules state that a trucker cannot take the governor off his truck. He must have roll bars, and gas tanks will be moved at our expense from the right side of the truck to the rear. As far as the fire suits go, diesel fuel is not that flammable, but drivers must wear fireproof clothing and are required to wear helmets. It's all in my rule book. We've also employed a number of people with years of driving experience in racing to check out safety precautions and school the drivers. Indianapolis drivers Tom Sneva and Gordon Johncock will coach the drivers for a week prior to the race, Bobby Babson, vice president in charge of communications at Atlanta International Raceway, said. The track was making a thorough check of the purpose-built race trucks before leasing the facility. We're always looking for ways to use the track and keep it busy, Babson said, but we couldn't get into anything we thought would turn into a bloody spectacle, quote-unquote. Everything that goes on here is a reflection on the racetrack. And now we're off to the races in terms of the public outcry, the public fear to stop this event. And Joan Claybrook, believe it or not, is still employed in the U.S. government. Uh, She still works either in the Department of Transportation or the National Highway Transportation Association, and The idea here was that they were going to put so much pressure on Donahoe via the media that he was going to be forced to cancel this race. And the pressure begins to mount not just from Claybrook, not just from the National Highway Transportation Safety Authority, but really from a whole bunch of different factors. And it comes hard and fast. So now we move to June, or rather May 15th, just five days later, May 15th, 1979. And this is in the Los Angeles Times. So this little big rig race that's supposed to be taking place in Atlanta has now turned into an absolute national news story. The title of the story is From Trash Sports to Crash Sports, Bobtail 200. A lot of people aren't happy with the idea of 14,000 pounds rigs racing 200 miles, written by a journalist named Jeff Prue, who is a staffer for the LA Times. An excerpt from the story. But one month before the green flag is waved here, June 17th, in the sport's inaugural race for 30 drivers at Atlanta International Raceway, it has touched off an uproar that would drown out a diesel engine. The government has asked the promoter to cancel the 200-mile race. The promoter says that the government can't stop us and that the race is expected to be held as scheduled with a $60,000 purse, including $15,000 for first prize. A similar race is planned for September 23rd at Ontario Speedway in California. The rules governing this alleged sporting event make it nothing more than an opportunity for truck drivers to be killed, said Joan Claybrook, administrator for the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. She wrote an open and strongly worded letter to race promoter James Donahue or Donahoe of Nashville. She complained that no fireproof clothing or fire retardant fuel tanks or roll bars were required, that diesel-powered trucks are not nearly as maneuverable as finely tuned race cars, and the event could be a bloody spectacle rather than anything resembling a sports contest to which Donahoe retorted that the government is picking on truckers. People race everything in the world, Donahoe said Monday, so why not bobtails? 
And beside, people look at truckers nowadays as if they're nothing but grease monkeys, when in reality, they're responsible family men who take care of their rigs and won't do anything that would hurt themselves or their image. And the government can't stop us anyway. Donahoe said that his sanctioning American Truck Racing Association has car owner Roger Penske and driver Gordon Johncock as consultants insisted that the drivers would take advantage of fireproof suits, roll bars, and other safety precautions that will be made available to them. He said he can demonstrate that a bobtail or a truck cab can fishtail into a full spin at 120 and remain upright, although he guessed that speeds during the race will be 80 to 90 miles an hour. He said his associates met last Friday in Washington to tell the government, the Teamsters, and the trucking industry representatives present that the race will conform to auto racing safety standards. After we explained everything to them, they didn't have much to say, he said. Reach Monday for their version of the meeting, others had plenty to say, mainly that the race should not be held. Our position remains the same. It's not safe and it's not good for the image of truckers, said David Umansky, public affairs director of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. We had a very frank discussion with them. Will Johns, Managing Director of Mechanical Services for the Washington-based American Trucking Association, attended the meeting and agrees with Omansky. It doesn't do a damn thing for the trucker who's got enough image problems already, Johns said. There are just too many negative aspects about this race. The tractor is built for hauling trailers that carry 23 to 80,000 pounds. It's not modified for, drag or for racing in the way cars are. We're afraid that by itself weights of 14,000 pounds, the tractor itself is inherently unstable and not made for sudden maneuvers. It might oversteer. It might understeer. It may have braking problems, and we don't know what the drivers will do in crowds of tractor cabs at high speeds. They're used to driving on the highways, not the speedways, and International Brotherhood of Teamsters representative George Mernick said that the union has grave concerns about the race. Most drivers dislike bobtailing anyway, he said. The braking of these rigs is set up to carry a load of goods. Many of them have rear axle brakes, and if they have to panic stop, they may spin like a top if there's moisture on the road. Is there an owner-operator really going to risk wrecking a forty dollars to $60,000 piece of equipment? The answer to that question is yes, there was. There was dozens of them. Donahoe, in typical promoter speak, would talk about the fact that he had some 57 to 60 entries that were going to participate in this race. and It would eventually whittle itself down to about 30, but still, there was plenty of interest, and... So now we talk about Donahoe having the government, the Teamsters, uh, the American Trucking Association, and uh, as I mentioned, various other entities uh, against him. And it will actually continue to get worse from there in terms of the negative publicity. A company named Gould, Gould Industries, I should say, was going to sponsor this race. And they were very forward about their sponsorship of it. They were a huge company um, that no longer exists. They were absorbed by other corporations over the course of their lifetime. But the... Gould Company not only um, was just putting their name on this thing, they printed all kinds of materials. They kind of bragged on the fact that they were going to be the sponsor of this world's first bobtail truck race. And in the pamphlet that they put out, which was later pulled back in when Gould canceled their sponsorship, it's pretty interesting. Um, they talk about the fact that Gould's association with racing is not a new one. Since 1957, every winning car at the Indy 500 has used Gould engine bearings. And in 1978, the company became further involved in racing by sponsoring the Roger Penske Racing Team in 18 Championship Division Auto Races. The Gould Charge was one of the things that they talked about. This is a company that made batteries. They were basically kind of invented the, the sealed battery that we now kind of uh, take for granted in a lot of cars that come out of factories. Anyway, uh, one of the other large parts of their business was government contracts. And when the government started to come out strongly against this event uh they pulled their sponsorship and they pulled their sponsorship 
really close to the last minute. So um, some of the signage, you may see some signs from the event where you'll Google the name is still present because they really didn't have, even have time to take the, the signage down, let alone uh, disassociate themselves with it. And again, pamphlets, flyers, maps, all the uh, promotional advertising that was done before the race all touted this is the Gould Bobtail 200 to be held June 17th, 1979. The other uh, major sponsor of the race was Captain D's Seafood. And Captain D's Seafood is a, a huge chain down south. They still exist. Uh, it's probably bigger than ever. But you could go to your Captain D's locally and uh, get $2 off your tickets to go actually watch this event, which starting to look a little dicey in that late May time frame when all these news stories start coming out around the country. And understand that these were Associated Press news stories as well, so they weren't just running locally. Um, as I mentioned, the Los Angeles Times, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, papers across the United States were carrying these stories, and ultimately, you know, it's like everything else. Ultimately, in their best efforts to squash the race, all these people did was to do Jim Donahoe's job for him and made the race an even more giant spectacle than it would be eventually when it actually got run. We now move to Sunday, June 9th, 1979. We go to the Greenwood Index Journal. This is a small paper out of Greenwood, South Carolina. But again, this is an Associated Press story one week previous, or prior, I should say, to the race. Nashville promoter Jim Donahoe's association called the Great American Truck Race a monument to the American vision and venture that's made this country great. The feds, teamsters, and trucking industry say it's a dangerous dream racing to a deadly reality. The year-old brainchild of Donahoe and Pete Keller, the national director for the American Truck Racing Association, is floundering or flourishing depending on who you ask. The first of its kind, according to Keller, the Bobtail 200 is to be run June 17th at the Atlanta International Speedway. 30 tractor-trailer rigs minus the trailers will compete for a $15,000 first price and $65,000 total purse. Quoting Donahoe, we have 57 entries now, but others may pop up later, he said Wednesday from Atlanta. Roll bars have been installed, chassis are beefed up, and seat belts are added. These trucks won't run near as fast as stock cars. They'll be going 106 or 107 miles an hour, and they won't tear up the walls like cars do. Engineers have checked the walls and the weight of the trucks, and they will have far less impact if they hit the walls than stock cars because the area would be greater. Gould Inc., a major sponsor of the Rick Mears IndyCar racing this year, originally backed the truck race but has recently withdrawn their sponsorship. It was a business decision, Arnold Freed, Gould's director of advertising, said from Rolling Meadows, Illinois. It would be more beneficial for us not to be in this race. Donahoe said the Department of Transportation has asked him to cancel the race and that high-ranking officials of the National Association of Stock Car Auto Racing, a.k.a. NASCAR, are trying to burst his bubble. We're opposed to this race because fundamentally we don't think it's a safe race, William Close, the Transportation Department's Director of Heavy-Duty Vehicle Research, said from Washington. Bobtail trucks have a high center of gravity. You've seen them bouncing down the highway, and they seem to spend most of the time in the air, don't they? I have no idea what that even means. I'm afraid that this race is going to kill somebody. Bobtail tractors running on highways are three to four times more likely to be involved in a fatal accident than one hauling freight. We're not alone in opposing this. Manufacturers are asking truck sponsors to back out because of the safety features. Pete Keller, a NASCAR employee from 1952 to 1979, said, however, the trucks are safe and as maneuverable as cars driven by professionals. Who has more experience than these men in the big rigs? Building a hero out of the truck driver, he said, I think the trucker can handle this vehicle as well as Richard Petty and David Pearson can handle a stock car. These trucks are built to run these speeds, and lots of people don't realize their handling ability. 
Will Johns, the director of safety for the American Trucking Association, said his organization and the Teamsters don't want the event to happen. The bobtail tractor is designed in its brakes and steering stability to haul a trailer and freight, he said. Take the brakes without the trailer, and the freight would be like putting Cadillac brakes on a Volkswagen. They'd lock up as soon as you touch them, then add the speed. These drivers are as good as the vehicles when pulling freight on the highway, but with the incentive to win, he might try to slip his truck or tractor through the slot like a stock car racer does, but he's not a professional race driver. He may try something that he shouldn't try in a tractor as a driver. Image and the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit were considered as well. We talked to the Teamsters and agreed we don't want to see the image of the truck driver as a speeder, John said. Keller said NASCAR is trying to undermine the event as well. NASCAR is afraid of a new outfit moving in on their territory. I don't think NASCAR had the imagination or dream to put this together. They seem to think no one can function without them. For some reason, NASCAR has been against us from the start, said Jim Donahoe. I really can't say why. Maybe they're worried about competition to their events or something, but I know they tried to discourage Atlanta Speedway from leasing the track, and I suspect they were behind the letter to Washington. Bill France Jr., president of NASCAR, said his organization is not trying to halt the race, and he had no contact with the Transportation Department about the letter asking Donahoe to halt the event. Our responsibilities for our own events, he said from NASCAR's Daytona Beach headquarters. Other than safety, I am no more or less concerned than anyone else in the United States. I know the Department of Transportation is upset about it. We haven't talked to them. We're not involved in anything as far as that is concerned. Keller said manufacturers' equipment on the seventy dollars to $90,000 trucks will be put to the test. We don't want anything to be unsafe for the drivers because we want to build this up. It's a dream, a vision, a new venture that's just at its beginning. Manufacturers haven't been tested before because this is the first race of this kind, and now they're going to be tested, and it may send them back to the drawing board to redesign equipment. Asked if the race would send manufacturers scurrying to the drawing boards, William Close said, That's a crock of baloney, and you can quote me on that. Manufacturers never intended that these trucks should be raced, and they don't call promoters promoters for nothing. And Jim Donahoe, Olympic-level promoter, using all this potentially bad publicity to turn his race into a national news story. Despite the fact he lost a sponsor, despite the fact everybody was against him, he kept forging ahead, and the snowball kept rolling downhill, and things kept getting better and better for him because everybody kept paying more and more attention to what was about to happen. So now we're just three days before the start of the actual race itself. June 14, 1979, Atlanta Journal-Constitution newspaper. George Cunningham writes a story called Uncle Sam Wants to Halt the Great American Truck Race. The U.S. government hasn't hounded Larry Flint, but Uncle Sam's Department of Transportation has done everything short of boarding up Atlanta International Raceway to prevent the running of Sunday's Bobtail 200-miler. DOT Administrator Joan Claypool, in a letter to promoter Jim Donahoe, used such scorching phrases as a quote-unquote alleged sporting event and a bloody spectacle and a public suicide to describe the scheduled competition of the 10-wheel, 15,000-pound truck over the 1.5-mile high-banked Atlanta track. Goodyear, after tire tests, joined the chorus of, of people condemning the event, and so did General Tire Company. The original sponsor, Gould Inc., chickened out, leaving the race or spectacle, choose one, with less support than a Vietnam vet. Manufacturer representatives usually flock to auto racing like groupies to golfers, but not a single advertising banner was waving Wednesday at the racetrack. Truck racing has never been tried before, and the only belching, only the belching of the giant dual-pipe diesels as they whizzed around the track disturbed the serenity of the rural setting. Donahoe, used to promote stock car races in Nashville, confessed to having more enemies than a rattlesnake. I've got a stack of condemning telegrams from everybody, he said. I imagine Bill France went through the same thing before he ran the first NASCAR race, but there will be a truck race here on Sunday, and it will be the beginning of a new organization. 
answering the critics one by one, Donahoe shot. Using words for Miss for Miss Claypool not fit for public consumption, we can only say that we quote, she should have done her homework before making those statements about our race. He said, I went to Washington, D.C. to see her, and she wouldn't meet with us. Goodyear came here for tests on the cheapest tire they make. They sent trucks that weren't legal and ran speeds 128 miles an hour. It's totally insane to push a truck that fast on the cheapest tire they make. The top qualifying speed Thursday won't be more than 112, and race day speeds will likely be more than 85 or 90 miles an hour. The race will be safer than any stock car race. Why don't you see for yourself what it's like? And at that point, he actually put the reporter in one of the trucks, and the guy went out and made a bunch of uh, laps around. And the last paragraph of the story talks about Pete Keller being an asset and the best thing that the American Truck Racing Association has going for it. For 27 years, Keller was an important NASCAR official whose integrity was beyond question. Mention bloodbath, and he laughs. Quote, We have had the normal amount of problems you'd have at any race, Keller said, but trucks running 100 miles an hour here will be much safer than stock cars running 200 miles an hour at Talladega. Keller insisted the real enemy is not the Department of Transportation. 99% of our criticism is political, originating with NASCAR, he said of his former employee. Bill France Jr., president of NASCAR, is so narrow-minded that he thinks we're going to be responsible for bringing the government into all kinds of racing. He even called the track owners and tried to make them cancel the race. In one respect, Keller's Great American Truck Race has something going for it. Racing thrives on controversy, and there may have never been such a controversial beginning to any racing series in history. The problem is determining how much of it is political and how much of it is for real. We'll know on Sunday. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is brought to you by Gear Vendors Overdrives. For decades, Gear Vendors has been producing the highest quality, highest horsepower handling overdrives on the market. Easily installed behind a variety of manual and automatic transmissions, a Gear Vendors Overdrive is a transformative piece of driveline technology that takes even the hardest core 3,000 horsepower street machines and turns them into highway cruisers. The drastic increase in drivability and fuel economy are only a couple of the benefits that a Gear Vendors Overdrive unit can offer you and your hot rod. Check them out at GearVendors.com. And remember, GearVendors is the only overdrive that's guaranteed even while racing. Visit GearVendors.com to learn more. So after weathering this incredible storm of months and months of national negative news stories, of stuff that he had to fend himself off from, of government pressure, of NASCAR pressure, of the whole world seemingly against him, Jim Donahoe, Pete Keller, and these drivers showed up on Sunday to go racing for what they hoped would be a decent crowd at Atlanta Motor Speedway. That decent crowd turned out to be nearly 23,000 paying spectators who paid the equivalent of about $40 in 2020 money to come sit down and watch this thing. This was not a deal where you paid 5 bucks and got in the gate. The tickets were expensive, and as we're going to hear now from Berserko Bobby Doerr, the place was packed, and it was packed for a couple of different reasons. But first, let's hear about the crowd. It was. It was absolutely crazy, and there were so many people there. There were a lot of NASCAR drivers there that wanted to see it, and uh, there were a lot of, you know, other racing genres that all came out to see what the heck was going on. And the crowd just kept, kept on coming in, coming in, coming in. I set up that announcer booth, and I was there probably three hours, and I couldn't believe how much that crowd grew in, in just a short period of time. It was nuts. And one of the reasons that crowd grew so huge and so quickly was because people knew that beyond the race itself, there was something else going on at this first 1979 event, and that was a movie shoot. If you've ever watched Smokey and the Bandit 2, and I suggest if you haven't, you should. It's a great sequel, one of the great sequels of any movie franchise ever. The opening sequence of Smokey and the Bandit 2 was shot at this race. There are people that believe Hal Needham created Big Rig Truck Racing. No, 
Hal Needham helped to explode its popularity by including it as the opening sequence in Smoking the Bandit 2 and artfully took advantage of Jim Donahoe's uh, hospitality of having him down there in his, in his film crew to shoot. So before we move ahead to talk about the actual race and get Charlie's Baker's, Charlie Baker's perspective on competing in it, understand that all these truck drivers, these kind of guys, normal dudes who just drive trucks on a week-to-week basis were not only racing for the first time ever, probably nervous about that, they were also had national television there. Ken Squire, whose voice you heard earlier in the show at the Open, we're going to hear more from him in a little while, was there from the uh, CBS Sports Spectacular, was the show that he was hosting at the time, their version of Wide World of Sports. So national television, Hal Needham and the entire crew shooting for Smokey and the Bandit. Jerry Reed was putting on a concert on Saturday night in the infield of the Speedway. And this spectacle really kind of comes to fruition on the pace laps of the race. Let's hear how they actually shot the opening of Smoking the Bandit. First, we'll hear from Berserko Bob, and then we're going to hear again from Charlie to talk about shell shock and culture shock, going from a truck driver in Pennsylvania who wanted to race his truck to, well, a potential national TV star and a potential movie star. I was stuck up in the tower, but you know, I saw all the action going on down there, and they, they filmed a couple laps of the trucks just from the movie. Before they, uh, before they got into the actual race. It was all, uh, you know, built into the schedule. And the, the people knew that they were filming for the movie. That's why I think so many people came out. Because they were, um, you know, putting together and they wanted to be extras or whatever. But it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Well, you know, that was, um, that was Burt Reynolds and um, Hal Needham. Yep, Burt Reynolds and Hal Needham's deal. You know, they came down there and, and, and they, they filmed this race, which they used a little bit of the excerpt from it for Smokey and the Bandit Part 2. So you had all that excitement going on. And then you had Ken Square down there from, from uh, you know, national television. They were here. They were televising this race. So it was, it was pretty, uh, it's pretty cool, you know. <laughs> I mean, it got a, a ton of publicity a ton of publicity and then you know of course that and the advertisements that they were running and i mean i think they had thirty thousand people there that day in the stands and um, it was pretty exciting it's pretty exciting yeah you, know, you had the national tv coverage and then you had the the people filming you know for the for the movie and it's kind of crazy you know of course the national traffic association and and the EPA and everything, you know, this was going to be a bloodbath. And it was back during the energy crisis when the speed limit was set nationwide at 55 mile an hour. And we had gas lines and diesel fuel pump lines. And, you know, it was it was denounced really bad by national traffic. And we certainly know Charlie's words to be true from the reporting I've told you about so far into this show. He mentioned something about gas lines and fuel lines, and that was one of the major controversies of this race. During an energy crisis in 1979, people freaked out at the idea that these big trucks are going to be burning up all this diesel fuel, and that made a lot of people uh, angry. Well, in typical Jim Donahoe fashion, he had a solution for that problem as well a solution that wouldn't involve anybody being cheated out of any on-road fuel because, well, he found a whole tanker load of off-road fuel, according to Bobby Doerr. One thing I remember, he had his own fuel truck and provided the fuel for most of these trucks when they raced, and it was um, the off-road fuel. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so he, he brought in a bunch of that, and that created some problems for him, not only with the officials, but with the track, and then he, he worked it out. I don't know, I remember... 
distinctly him sitting in the corner of the pits talking to people and waving their hands and everything, but they let him go with it because it was an off-road event. And so we have finally made it to race day. The crowd's there, the trucks are fueled up, and despite the best efforts of Goodyear, General Motors, Cooper Tires, General Tire, the American Trucking Association, various government agencies, the Motor Vehicles Manufacturer Association, and basically every trucking publication in existence, this event is about to happen. You know they're racing big rigs. I've told you that. You understand that. But what were these big rigs? As I mentioned, the rules of ATRA stated that these had to be street-going trucks. We talked about Charlie saying that this was a street-going truck. Let's find out exactly what went into racing one of these things, and then we're going to talk about the inherent problems that come with racing a 1,000-horsepower, 14,000-pound truck around a super speedway on stock tires. But first, here's Charlie Baker to talk about the machine he raced in the very first ATRA Bobtail 200 in 1979. We th- I think it was a 76 or a 77 conventional KW, a day cab. It was a non-sleeper, and it had a 1693 Caterpillar engine in it. And the reason we took that is the Caterpillar engine was so much easier to uh, crank the fuel to it, turn the RPMs up on it, get more horsepower out of it than than other trucks on the road so we geared it up and threw a roll bar on the back of it and you know put the fuel tank up between the back of the uh, roll or the the frame rails like uh, specs asked us to do and we went down there along with 24 other guys and we had us a good time and um, um out of the 25 trucks that started that race 22 of us finished and you know top qualifying speed now these were highway trucks you know they were just we modified them a little bit as far as covering up the glass and putting the five points, you know, safety harness in them and things like that. But uh, other than that, they were street trucks. And uh, the guy that qualified on the pole, heck, he ran 112, almost 113 mile an hour average. And I started, I started eighth at 103 mile an hour. And and the slowest truck in the field was like 82 mile an hour. I think the average for the entire qualifying was 97 almost 98 mile an hour um i raced go-karts on dirt and asphalt you know prior to this i never did any stock car racing or dirt track racing and you know any kind of automotive thing and and that was pretty much the same with everybody that was in this field uh with the exception of mike adams who you know ideally ended up winning the race yes but mike had some some old dirt track stock car experience back in his earlier days but as far as everybody else on the track, he was the only one, to my knowledge, that actually had any kind of racing experience. And so hearing from Charlie Baker, that kind of firsthand remembrance of what this event was like is, is pretty amazing. Now, I have audio from the 1980 race to show you and to, to give your uh, to your listening pleasure, if you will, and I will work that in as we get deeper into the show here, but I do not have any audio from the 1979 race. It was broadcast on television. Unfortunately, nobody has uploaded that 79 broadcast to YouTube yet. I did find the 1980 race, which again, we're going to talk about as we talk a little bit about the evolution of this style of competition, but the big news from the 1979 race was like trifold. The first part of it was the fact that the race came off without a hitch. 22 of the 25 trucks finished. There were a couple of accidents. Kenny Farmer famously crashed his truck, a truck called Special K, and it kind of got up on its side. He blew a right front tire, which was the Achilles heel of all these trucks, and we're going to talk a lot about that. Um, 
and he crashed into the wall. The truck kind of flopped onto its side. He was fine. He banged his knee on the shifter. That was it. Another guy hit the wall, uh, had a tire failure, hit the wall. Again, walked away from it. Everything was fine. The second part of this was the fact that the crowd was highly entertained. These trucks went 100-some miles an hour. They weren't going 200 like you'd see at Talladega in a stock car, but the crowd itself was very entertained because of the fact that these guys were slicing and dicing in these big trucks. They made a lot of noise. They all had kind of a different sound. Some guys had Cummins engines, some Caterpillars, some Detroit diesels. They made smoke. They did all this wild stuff. They put on a great show. And finally, the third piece of news was that Seneca's South Carolina's Mike Adams won this event, and according to the Associated Press of June 18, 1979 story, it was a highly successful race. And I quote, Mike Adams' homemade and home-built truck with junkyard parts had 250,000 miles on it when he took it to Atlanta International Raceway for a chance at speedway racing glory. I found out I was in the lead after the last caution flag came out, said Adams, who took over first place on Sunday in the Great American Truck Race when the truck ahead of him blew a tire and slammed into the wall with less than four laps to go. Adams idled home under the caution flag and won $15,000, which he said is about all his truck is worth. It was built during the recession of 1973. We bought the cab and frame from a concrete plant and the engine out of a junkyard, said Adams, who runs a car crushing business in Seneca, South Carolina. I've always been interested in speedway racing, he said. I'm 40 now, so I figured this might be the only opportunity I'd get. Ken Farmer estimated his polished chromed in 1977 Kenworth was worth $125,000 before he brought it to the track and did about five to $10,000 worth of damage to it when he hit the wall. The Alabama driver said he was racing fender to fender with Junior Reed of Franklin, Tennessee, thinking Reed was trying for the lead, but Reed was actually two laps down. Adams, in a truck that is mostly a 1965 GMC, was running third on the 128th lap of the 200-mile, 132-lap race, when the second-place truck driven by Virgil Diedrich of Stanton, Virginia, was black-flagged off the track for a bad right front tire. On the next lap, Farmer slammed into the wall. Charlie Baker of Hanover, Pennsylvania, was second, winning $7,500. Diedrich changed the tire and finished third for $3,500. Doyle Montgomery of Westchester, Ohio, finished fourth for $2,500. And Jack Schreffler of Belvedere, New Jersey, was fifth, winning $2,000. We knew we couldn't run with a front runner, said Adams, so I paced myself the first half of the race up until the black truck blew on the back straight on the 57th lap. I really didn't know where I was. Then his pit crew told him he was among the leaders, but he didn't know Farmer's red truck was ahead of him in first place, and he was not going to try to catch him. I wasn't concerned about Farmer, and I knew he could blow my doors off at any time he wanted to, said Adams. Tire problems, particularly with the right front, plagued many racers, but Adams didn't suffer this fate. We didn't make a tire change, he said. We weren't set up to make a tire change, and that's one of the reasons we paced ourselves. James Bickle of Silver Lake, Indiana, blew a tire on the main straight while leading the race on the 91st lap, but managed to get his rig into the pits. Jim Lemon of Cherokee, Ohio, blew a tire on the 57th lap and hit the wall in the third turn. He was unhurt. This race was a massive success in so many levels. It validated everything Donahoe thought about what this could be. It validated everything about the drivers. They were able to handle these trucks at speed. It certainly validated the fact that it wasn't a bloodbath. It wasn't a public suicide, that all of the rancor caused by the government and all these different companies uh, was basically for nothing. And they had effectively built Jim Donahoe's business for him with all the controversy. He came out and delivered a successful event, and he already had another one booked for that year out in Ontario, California. But before we go ahead and start talking about the Ontario race, we really have to zone in on one particular thing and that is right front tires. When Goodyear and basically every other tire manufacturer began to not only uh, not support this, but almost openly boycott and threaten to sue people for using their product on the racetrack, 
right front tires became a problem because no one would build a racing tire for 14,000-pound trucks. It was too dangerous a proposition. The tire companies were afraid they wouldn't be able to construct anything that would actually work, and they were probably right. These trucks would put incredible load on the right front tire, especially in the very early days of this sport because of the fact that it's just a beam axle on a stock tire whipping around this racetrack at a far higher speed than the tire was initially rated for and making a constant left-hand turn basically is building up a lot of heat in that tire. So let's talk a little bit about right front tires and the evolution of how they got fixed and what racers did to try to solve the problem because it is pretty ingenious. These guys... Well, many of them not racers to start with, certainly became racers pretty quick. Charlie Baker tells us about tires. I mean, the tires were the biggest yeah. issue. The, the tires weren't designed, not, it really wasn't so much because of the speed, it was because the heat they created in the high bank ovals. I mean, when you, when you put that truck in there, I mean, you could just, I mean, the tires are just begging for mercy. <laughs> You know, when you when you went in them when you in them turns at a, at a hundred and some mile an hour and turned that steering wheel, I mean, you could just hear them saying, "Please don't do this to me." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of blown tires in that event, but um, well, and I mean, that's really was was the cause of the three accidents were blown tires. And even uh, just to jump ahead one year in 1980, you're you I mean, you had a great race in '80, and you were right up the front contending. And I believe you were actually leading when you had a you had a tire kind of come apart and then finally blow up. And it only you only had two or three laps yet to finish the race. Yep, yep, that was the '80 race in Atlanta. Um, we ran, of course, there started in June of '79, but and we actually changed the tire in that race. Uh, I had a tire that was coming apart, but we caught it before it blew. And we came in and changed the tire, and, and uh, we still ended up going back out to be competitive. But, you know, as, as times went on, you know, we got smarter about the tires, and, and we take actually take a brand-new tire and shave all the rubber off of it down to 230 seconds of rubber. And it would keep the, the heat, you know, from building up in the, in the – uh, surface of the tire because of too much rubber there shifting and moving around so we started doing that and we started running nitrogen in the tires instead of air because it ran a little bit cooler and to kind of double down on what charlie just said about shaving the tires here's a feature from the 1980 atlanta great american truck race brock yates is the voice you're going to hear talking about exactly what charlie just mentioned tires in the order of the day once again they're coming apart here in the great american truck race the tire situation has brought out five cautions today hal needham yeah and every time it brings out a caution it changes our leaders it's going to be interesting down towards the end to see who this is going to be and there's the scene we've seen all afternoon tread just completely torn off this time off number 34 ron lutkin of syracuse new york was doing just fine until the air started showing through. You know, I think it's the heat that's really filling up these tires that's causing the problem. And again, well, earlier, Brock Yates took a look at just what the problem was and what the drivers are doing to alleviate the situation. Here's what he found out. As big and as tough as these rigs are, they do have an Achilles heel, and that's the tires. Because the tire companies have denounced truck racing from the start and won't produce any kind of racing rubber, the drivers here are forced to do this sort of thing. What we're doing here is shaving the tread down to help dissipate the heat that builds up in the tread pattern. They start out with a stock tire of about one inch worth of tread. By the time this gentleman gets through, he will have shaved as much as three quarters of an inch of that rubber away. 
ending up a little pile here on the garage floor. What that'll do is make the tires run cooler, and although these are not racing tires, these are stock truck tires, they will probably work as well as anything that's available right now. It's kind of a jury rig. It's not really a perfect setup, but it's a lot better than running on the rims. Well, the guys used to come in and shave the tires, and uh, you know that no racing trick and shave down the tread, and then somebody, and I think it's a guy named Jack Scheffler, came up with a, a, a set of racing, not to say slicks, but racing tires, and he, he kicked ass with that. Um, a lot of guys blew it, you know, blew tires. They were no serious wrecks, but they were wrecked that tore up a lot of, a lot of equipment, and the crowd loved it. <laughs> so shaving the tires was really one of the first performance things that were done to these trucks to try to make them function a little bit better, and that all came from that 1979 race when people started looking around going, okay, how do we fix this stuff? The next major evolution in terms of making these trucks handle better actually comes in in the camber department. And if you're familiar with what a camber is, for basic explanation, when you look head-on at a car, if the tires are leaning, the tops of the tires lean in, that's negative camber. If they lean outward, that's positive camber. You need, typically, in a car or a truck, or a big rig in this case, that you want to make handle, you want to have some negative camber. Well, as we know, the front end of a big rig has a giant beam iron front axle. It is not like a, um, a modern car that you have independent suspension where you can take the tires and you can move the struts and you can kind of re-engineer the front end to, to lean those tires in. The big question would be, how do you get camber into the front end of a big rig to make it one handle better and two make the tire have a more consistent contact patch with the racetrack and potentially last a little bit longer leave it to racers or in this case truckers to figure out how to get camber into the front axle of a big rig and make their stuff even faster way faster than it was ever even designed to go listen to this and then uh, Mike Adams came up with this idea about cutting the front axle in three pieces. Yeah, this is this is something I want to get into because it's it's the most brilliant thing. It it seems kind of Frankenstein and crazy, but this guy figured out how to basically put camber into a into a beam yep. axle. So let's talk yep. about let's talk about that whole process because I feel like that must have changed the way these things drove immensely. Yep. Well, eventually we we bent the axle. Uh, we took it to. Uh, there's a company here in Hanover, Pennsylvania, that makes power steering units. It's called Shepard Power Steering, which is a, a big OEM steering box on most of your Kenworth and Peterbilts today. But they had this huge press where they could bend axles. And that's the first thing we did was bend the axle. Well, you know, you had to guess at the camber. So, you know, you could either have it close or you would be out to lunch. But then Mike shows up at the racetrack with this three-piece axle. Of course, everybody followed suit where you could unbolt the thing and put fins in it and change the camera to wherever the temperature was reading in the tires. So once we started to do that, the tire issue wasn't as bad, and racing became more competitive because guys guys tended to not fear blowing tires. You know, they they get in there and they'd fight. You know, because before you really had to be conservative on the tires as far as how fast you ran and you know how hard you wanted to push the truck. But that was that was a big deal there. Um, and these trucks, I mean, they were heavy. I mean that that truck that uh, that I ran in 1980 in Atlanta that that truck alone weighed 15,000 pounds. <laughs> That's insane. I mean, just just the truck. 
just the truck. And so to kind of continue on this mechanical path run now to talk about the rigs themselves, we are now kind of have a better understanding of the hurdles to overcome, the right front tire issue, which would be part of this sport from beginning until it really went on to more short and dirt tracks, which we'll talk about in a little while. But how about the hot rodding involved here? Because we have not touched on the fact that you know, in 1979, the number one qualifier at um, at Atlanta was about 112 miles an hour average a lap. In 1980, it was up to 122. And we're talking full size big rig trucks. You got to remember, these are not what would become later, you know, cut down, lowered, all this other stuff. In 79 and 80, and really up until the mid 1980s, these were full size big rig trucks that weighed seven tons, eight tons in some cases. How in the hell? Were they going upwards of 130 at Atlanta and a lot faster than that in other places? They were doing it via hot rodding. Let's talk about the mechanical craziness that was underneath and underpinning these trucks because it bears talking about. In the late 70s, these trucks were making over 1,000 horsepower to do the things that they were doing. The type of performance that top fuel dragsters and nitro funny cars were probably making about 2000 around this time period. So to think about a nitro funny car, or a top fuel dragster making 2000 horsepower and then looking at a diesel powered big rig truck, making a thousand in some ways, the truck may actually be more impressive. Here's how they did it. Well, nobody wanted to tell you much of anything. You know, they, they really didn't. Um, like I said, we, we started out running the 1693 cat and, that truck was real easy to crank the horsepower to. I mean, a 716th wrench and, and an Allen wrench, and you could make that thing turn as much horsepower as you wanted it to. All you had to do was take the air-fuel ratio control off of it, go in there with a 716th socket, loosen the rack screw and nut, and, yep. the, and open the fuel rack up as far as you wanted to open it. And and you could turn the RPMs up, I think it was a 916th wrench, turn that up. And... Um, Coincidentally, that that was the same motor Mike Adams was running in that very first race too. I mean, they said about him racing an old junkyard dog, which was an old GMC, but he had a 1693 cat sitting under the hood in that thing. But you know, as as time went on, and we built that modified truck like a KT 600. I mean, we sent that fuel pump out to Chicago to the people that build fuel pumps for these tractor pullers. Okay. And, you know, we, we relieved and ported the cylinder heads on that thing. I mean, a Cummins had that motor had six cylinder heads on it. And, you know, we, we polished them out and, you know, relieved and ported them. We were running a turbo off of a, a B-16 engine on that thing. <laughs> you know, the injectors were custom built by the guys that do tractor pullers. So, you know, everybody had their own unique way. Now, the guys with the Detroits, of course, they were putting bigger injectors in. I mean, they were changing camshaft durations and when running twin turbos, and everybody had their own little deal there. I mean, back in the beginning, some guys tried to show up without clutches in their trucks, you know, to, to turn more horsepower, and it's, everybody was just trying their own crazy routines to try to go faster. But it didn't matter how fast you went. You couldn't keep tires on the truck anyhow. Right. So, <laughs> you know, so the faster you went, the faster you blew tires. <laughs> well, a lot of guys ran a 15-speed overdrive. At that time, uh, that truck probably had the highest or the, the lowest delivery ratio in high gear of any road truck out there other than, like, 4 by 4s and things like that. Okay. But... Um, 
you know, once you got that truck up in, in the last year, it had the best delivery as far as the fastest overdrive, you know, delivery. But the transmission that we were running, Eaton specially built that transmission for me. And I think uh, as a reference, I think uh, a 15 speed back then, uh, the last gear delivery ratio was either a 61 or a 71, something like that. Okay. Uh, a point, you know, six yeah, one over, or seven. It's an one. overdrive, yeah. Okay. Right. But the transmission that Eaton built for me had a point five one. Oh, okay. And then, you know, everybody was running uh, um, 355 gears, which were the fastest gears you could buy on the market at that time. I mean, most everybody was running either a 355 or a 390. But that transmission I had was geared so high, I never, ever had that truck in the last hole. I mean, it, uh, you know, I had to stick in the last hole, but it was still indirect. I didn't have it in overdrive. Wow. Because that truck was a, it was a 13-speed overdrive transmission. But, you know, most guys were running a 15-speed. That was the fastest and the simplest thing to run. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is brought to you by Gear Vendors Overdrives. For decades, Gear Vendors has been producing the highest quality, highest horsepower handling overdrives on the market. Easily installed behind a variety of manual and automatic transmissions, a Gear Vendors Overdrive is a transformative piece of driveline technology that takes even the hardest core 3,000 horsepower street machines and turns them into highway cruisers. The drastic increase in drivability and fuel economy are only a couple of the benefits that a Gear Vendors Overdrive unit can offer you and your hot rod. Check them out at GearVendors.com. And remember, GearVendors is the only overdrive that's guaranteed even while racing. Visit GearVendors.com to learn more. So now we pick up just after the Atlanta race. We've gotten a little bit of insight into the trucks. We've seen some of the evolutionary changes that have happened. And now we kind of go back into the meat of our story from 1979. And the day after the race, you had AP stories that ran across the country celebrating Mike Adams' win in the famed Junkyard Dog truck, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a few minutes. But there was also a story in the L.A. Times that ran, continuing this kind of negative vibe, and, and it's almost like they were seeding this, kind of seeding the public to be anti this race that, remember, there was supposed to be another one run in September of 1979 at the uh, Ontario Motor Speedway, known as the Indy of the West out in California. So this is written... On June 18, 1979, published in the Los Angeles Times, and the title of the story is Fuel Protest Goes Up and Smoke at Truck Race. Here we go. Whatever happened to America's fuel crisis? For three hours here on Sunday afternoon, it all went up in diesel smoke. While thousands of truckers across the country are doing a slow burn in protest of rising fuel prices and slower speeds on the highway, 25 of them burned up hundreds of gallons of diesel fuel in what was ballyhooed as the first great American truck race. But nobody seemed to mind, at least not all the estimated 18,500 people who paid up to 25 bucks a ticket to watch smoke-belching truck cabs without trailers reach speeds as high as 105 miles an hour, sometimes three abreast into 25-degree bank turns at the Atlanta International Raceway. When it was all over, Mike Adams collected the first prize of $15,000 by averaging better than 80 miles an hour in his 1965 GMC, one of the oldest vehicles in the race. What difference does it make if a bunch of people travel 300 miles to a picnic or 400 miles to go fishing, asked Jim Roden of Dallas, a pit crew chief for one of the drivers in the Bobtail 200, shouting over the roar of the 15,000-pound trucks. That's their bag, and this is our bag. This is still the United States of America, and we feel as though we should be able to pursue our hobby. But others, including promoter James Donahoe of Nashville, who put on the race despite federal government warnings that drivers might be killed in accidents, conceded that the race was a victim of bad timing. I couldn't help that, Donahoe said. 
explaining that he had planned the event long before independent truckers began boycotting gas pumps, protesting the high cost of diesel fuel, and threatening to shut down fuel supply depots. Indeed, it's been a stormy week in which some truckers have sniped at the Carter administration and at each other. The night before, a Georgia truck driver had been shot along Interstate I-75 by an unidentified assailant. Earlier in the week, a Georgia trucker's wife was shot while riding in her husband's rig in Alabama. That prompted the Alabama governor to activate National Guardsmen to escort shipments of vital supplies. There is also rumors that some of the recalcitrant truckers may try to disrupt the Bobtail 200. But law enforcement authorities said that there was no hint of any disturbance that would materialize. It was estimated that about 1,000 gallons of diesel fuel were burned in the race. Each driver was allowed no more than 50 gallons, a fuel-saving measure imposed by the race organizers, but not all of the allotment was used. About a fourth of the race was run under the caution flag at a reduced speed when tire blowouts and two accidents forced three trucks out of the race. Some truckers estimated that they had to reduce speed by about 10% to conserve enough fuel to finish the race. I don't see any harm in burning fuel out here when thousands of other people are doing it going to baseball games and horse races, Mike Adams, the winning driver, said after the race. And besides, what's this race for so people can go and enjoy themselves? Promoter Donahoe, president of the American Truck Racing Association, which sanctioned the race and will put on an event September 23rd at California's Ontario Speedway, said, See those vehicles? Motioning toward the spectator cars, vans, campers, and motorhomes. They ain't moving. They're just sitting. People aren't driving them to Florida or out to eat. So we're saving fuel. Why, I bet they spill more fuel in this state in one day than we're burning here at this race. For Donahoe and other race organizers, it was a day of vindication. There were no serious injuries. The first 10 rows of the grandstands had been ordered clear to spectators as a safety measure. And despite the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration's warnings, it was not a bloody spectacle. A tire manufacturer withdrew its backing for the same reason. There was no bloodbath, Mike Parkers, president of the Independent Truckers Association, told the crowd after. These drivers showed that they were fantastic, gutsy, smart, and wise. What's so bad about burning a 1,000 gallons of fuel here, Parker snapped. Think of all the fuel the president uses by flying Air Force One to Vienna to go listen to violins while the truckers burn on the highway. Vindication. The race was successful. They were going to go out and race in California, and excitement was at an all-time high. Another uh, venue that took a bit of a victory lap, of course, was Overdrive Magazine because they were the only ones that stood behind Donahoe. They were the, the rebel, the rebellious publication that didn't downplay this race. And they took every opportunity to basically slam, um, you know, their competitors in doing so. As we look at the story entitled ATRA in Atlanta from Overdrive Magazine, uh, August issue 1979. When the newly formed American Truck Racing Association first started, they contacted the press and virtually all trucking publications, including Overdrive. In Atlanta, at a press conference several weeks before the race, Jim Donahoe, the president and founder of the American Truck Racing Association, predicted that the race would be exciting and safe. That press conference, held in conjunction with the International Truck Show, was attended by representatives of several trucking publications. Most of the writers and editors there indicated a curious interest. Some sniffed potential advertising dollars from the newly formed ATRA organization, but some smelled trouble and expressed their doubts that, truck could race, that trucks could race on an oval track without bad accidents resulting in injuries or death. It had been apparent that since Overdrive was on the advisory committee as chairman of the Promotional and Contingency Committee, there were definite mixed emotions from other trucking publications, editors, and publishers. After all, none of them had ever promoted anything Overdrive had involved itself in, at least knowingly, so they had undoubtedly felt, though that we wouldn't express if they promoted the race in any way, it might help Overdrive somehow, even though we didn't receive a dime for anything we did to promote the race. Overdrive had run an initial article on the race in March just a few weeks after Jim Donahoe had announced it. We followed that March article by publishing the rules and regulations in April and had another article in May, then a final editorial in June. 
By the middle of May, the quote-unquote kill-the-race campaign had geared up in the trucking industry, everywhere but at Overdrive, of course. Although Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine, a West Coast giveaway publication from Newport Beach, had published one small article ballyhooing the race, they also knocked it in the same issue. Perhaps they thought this was a way no matter what happened they would be right. Sort of reminds us of a newspaper endorsing both candidates for an elective office, doesn't it? The Chilton Company, recently sold by the Sun Oil Company, published a magazine called Commercial Car Journal and also Owner Operator. CCJ, as the former likes to call itself, is a monthly publication long dedicated to the success of the big fleet operator. Its younger sister publication, Owner Operator, published, published every two months, is allegedly dedicated to the success of the independent trucker. But they have shared common editorial and advertising offices and sales forces for years. When one editor writing for CCJ would finish an article designed to help fleets, he would merely swivel his chair and turn out a rewritten version for owner-operator in order to quote-unquote help the independent trucker. Thus, those thousands of truckers who attended the race obviously heard about it either from word of mouth, overdrive, or the direct promotion of the ATRA, but not from any of the other trucking publications allegedly aimed at truckers. And amazingly, a large and happy crowd appeared at the race on Father's Day, and in spite of the opinions of Joan Claybrook of the NHTSA, Harry Close of the DOT, the published or whispered knocks of other trucking publications, editors, or publishers, not one person suffered a scratch. More vehicles finished the race than in just about any other motorized race of that length, 22 out of 25. The administrator of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Joan Claybrook, wrote a long letter to Jim Donahue suggesting the race be canceled. And we've gone through this earlier in the show. And there was a whisper campaign and there was the other thing. But again, Overdrive Magazine took every opportunity to kind of thumb their noses at everyone else to prove that they were right and they were correct in backing the race. So now we turn our attention towards California. And this same story begins to promote this California race by saying, they said it couldn't be done, but we did it in Atlanta. Everybody talked about it, everybody said it wouldn't happen, and one day it did, but nobody but the truckers would support it. The race was very successful with over 22,000 spectators standing on their feet throughout the entire event. Donahoe was bringing his truckers to one of the most prestigious tracks in the USA, the Ontario Motor Speedway, for the second round track truck race in history on September 23rd. Practice and time trials begin on Thursday, September 18th, and at 9 a.m. Saturday sees the finalization of qualifying races, then 9 to 12, a country music entertainment festival will take place. A truck drag race will take place from 1 p.m. until 6. Sunday, doors open at 9.30 a.m. with pre-race festivities going on until 12.30. Then at 1 p.m., the truck race begins. One question is, will the opposition that Donahoe and the truck racers faced in Atlanta again try to stop the race, or did they learn their lesson? Apart from opposition from the Teamsters Union and tire manufacturers who threatened to sue if any one of the trucks used their product, one major opponent of the race was the federal government. Joan Claybrook did everything in her power to cancel the Atlanta race, saying it would be a bloody spectacle. No one in her office has given a comment about the upcoming event. Jim Donahoe's answer to the government officials and everyone else trying to stop his truck race? If these truckers want a race, we're going to have a truck race, even if no one shows up but the truckers. And they did have a truck race. They went out to Ontario Motor Speedway. And you know who else went out there? Berserko Bobby Doerr. That was pretty big, too. The Californians never seen anything like that. We had two days out there at the track they had uh, one day they had drag races on the um front stretch just like the nhra used to do with the uh with the uh you know the super nationals and yeah. the world and then the next day they did the they did the circle track and there were people there i couldn't believe it i couldn't believe how many people but california's never seen anything like this the old, the old redneck sport you know and it was, it was a lot of fun 
I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story at the Ontario race. There's the whole field goes by and there's one guy and he's half a lap behind. So he, the whole field goes by, they're into turn two. He comes by the finish line, you know, dead last. So I, I say to the crowd, um, next time this guy comes around, he's going to be half a lap behind the rest of the field. I want everybody in the grandstands to stand up and cheer and yell and scream. So the field goes by, boom, boom. And then there's the old slow guy, number 64, I'll never forget. And the crowd goes, yay, they're freaking out. The guy's looking around. As Bob says, the California race was as much a curiosity as the Atlanta race was because, you know, this wasn't live television. They didn't broadcast that race live. It was done on tape delay, and a lot of people didn't see it. So uh, the media not being what it is today, you know, in September, maybe some people had heard about it. Maybe some people had seen it. But the first race was such a success that Donahoe was able to link up with Sears, and Sears helped to promote the race. They'd sold ticket at Sears, tickets at Sears locations um, and Sears service centers. So that was a good pickup for him to help spread the word. And it was also, as you'd imagine, covered in the media in an entirely different way than the first race was. The California media embraced this. All the controversy had gone away. The the bad, evil forces that tried to stop Jim Donahoe in the first place had been effectively defeated, and they gave up. We don't hear another word about Joan Claybrook. We don't hear another word about the Teamsters. We don't hear another word about a tire company threatening to sue people. It just flat out went away. It was this big storm cloud that hung over top. The event, first one happened. It went great, and then everybody just gave up trying to trying to fight this thing, and they started to embrace it. And so we go to the September 22nd, 1979, San Bernardino County Sun newspaper. A reporter named Jim Schulte is assigned to this race, and he starts to talk about the the qualifying. And he talks about this environment and these, and these good old country boys that are out here trucking. Ontario, California is the, the dateline. The truck driver swung down from his immense rig and sauntered off to a group of friends. Woo-wee, someone exclaimed. You look like you were do- plum doing over 150. The driver scowled, sucked on his teeth while he thought that over, and then spit in the direction of the rig. Hell, he drawled. I was barreling down 515 faster than a herd of Smokies on my tail. He was then interrupted by the thunder of another rig, dark diesel smoke billowing from the exhaust pipe as it charged around the two-and-a-half-mile oval at Ontario Motor Speedway. Yep, he slowly added. I was doing about 100 down the backstretch. If I don't get more juice from my baby, them guys going to chew me up and spit me out like day-old gum. I mean, some of these guys are doing some mean trucking out there. Mean indeed. It was a day of slow talking and fast trucks Thursday at Ontario Motor Speedway as drivers began qualifying for Sunday's Great American Truck Race, known as the California Bobtail 200. And for Jim Bickle of Silver Lake, Indiana, he showed just how mean and fast he could wrestle his 16,000-pound Cummins-powered Kenworth around to pole position by averaging 110.11 miles an hour. Virgil Diedrich Jr. of Staunton, Virginia qualified second, clocking in at 107 miles an hour, and fan favorite Ken Farmer of Alabama qualified third for the 200-mile race with 107.25. So, again, it's only the second race. You're seeing the speeds are equivalent to Atlanta, mainly because the two-and-a-half-mile-long track there was a flat oval, or flat, effectively a recreation of the of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So you don't have the bankings of the sustained speed. So the stretches are much longer than they were at Atlanta. The speeds coming kind of in and out of the corners uh, are definitely lower because of the fact that they can't carry as much without the banking. But the race comes off, again, absolutely without a hitch. Everybody has a great time. 
and the race is well attended. They estimated, again, about twenty to 30,000 people showed up at Ontario Motor Speedway, and it was Jim Bickle who was the number one qualifier that won the race. And, you know, he's a 44-year-old guy. The truck that he raced was called the Liberty Bell, and what made it interesting, the Liberty Bell was actually meant to be a race truck. Pretty much everybody else had a rig that could work on the road, but Bickle kind of went the extra mile on this thing and, and made it into a race truck. Bickle, also a very smart racer, and I quote the Jim Schulte race results story. Jim Bickle says, I didn't try pushing it through the turns, he said, after collecting his $16,000 purse. I'd run up through the turns and break it down to 85 and then go punch it back out on the straightaway. If I pushed it over 85, I could smell my tires, so I just kept her down to where I couldn't smell the tires. You see, once you start smelling the tires, it ain't very long before something goes wrong. He obviously knows what he's talking about. There were only three cautions in the entire lap for an entirety of 12 laps in the race, but the last two were caused by tire shredding. In both cases, it was the right front that blew, mostly because that's the one under the most stress due to all the left-hand turns. Of those two, it was the last yellow flag that provided the most excitement in what was a very routine race. Bickle, better known by a CB handle Jungle Jim, was 8.5 seconds behind Jacobs with just 15 laps to go. Three laps later, he had trimmed that down to three and was closing in. Bickle finally took the lead on lap 69 when he outran Jacobs down the front straight to reach the first turn ahead of him. The battle was on. The two stayed close, and Bickle was losing ground in the straights and the corners, but making it up in the straights. He was pulling those turns somewhere between 90 and 95, noted Bickle. He was trying to get me to do the same thing. Probably. I'm guessing at that. It's a game out there. There's strategy. You try to outthink the other guy. But Bickle went on and had a successful career as well. His truck actually was... Uh, uh, a truck that set a land speed record for big rigs back in the day. Let's talk about speed. The 1979 quote-unquote season, these first two races, showed us that this not only is a entertaining sport, this is something that's going to be successful, but we need to talk about speed. And Charlie Baker um, is recognized widely as kind of the king of speed. One of the most interesting and oft-quoted pieces of information you'll see about the Great American Truck Race or tracing series over the course of its time was that Baker was able to run 150 miles an hour in a full-size big rig at Pocono. So I asked Charlie flat out, is the story real? Is the story fake? Is it just legend? Is it just lore? Or did you actually run 150 miles an hour at Pocono? And was there anywhere you went faster? That is the truth, um, and I can only I can say that in all honesty because the Pennsylvania State Police were over one day, and we were we were uh, practicing, and they were down at the end of the front straight with their radar radar guns, and they had us at 150 mile an hour coming down through there. That that same truck that I took over the wall at the Pocono, um, I actually at Texas World Speedway, which that track's not there anymore. That was the one that was down there outside of yeah. College Station, Texas. That was a two-bank or two-mile high-bank oval, and I averaged 132.86 mile an hour on the track. That is unbelievable. So, I mean, you know, a little bit, if you know anything about racing at all, if that was the average, you know we were hitting speeds of 150 down the back stretch. Yeah, because you obviously can't carry that speed into the corner, so you're down a little bit in the corner, but you make it back up on the straightaway in terms of the average right. speed. That's insane. But like, um, but like uh, that very first race in Atlanta where, where uh, Jim Bickle set on the pole at 112 mile an hour, when we went back there years later, um, we ran – I want to say I ran 131 mile an hour down there. 
I think because, yeah, I think that's a I think that's a fair statement because when I looked at the numbers from the eighty race, I think the average speed for the number one qualifier is like one hundred and twenty two miles an hour. So it, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I qualified at one hundred thirty one mile an hour on that track then. So you know, we ran twenty mile an hour faster than you know in later years, but basically the you know pretty much the same you know truck that we did when we went there in 1979 with a lot of modifications, but it was still basically a, a road truck, you know, truck frame, truck suspension, weighed 15,000 pounds. Now it had a full roll cage inside of it, you know, that, that we had put in mod- modified and stuff, but it was still pretty incredible that they went that fast and they handled really well. The only problem you had as with all of them, they were top heavy. And, I mean, when you put them things in them high bank turns, I mean, you got a lot of top roll out of them. And, of course, that roll trans- transferred to the right front tire, which overheated the tire and blew tires out because, you know, not only did the truck start to push, but the whole truck wants to roll up on the right front wheel. <laughs> so, you know, you, that was the worst part of, of running those trucks was the, was the cab roll, but... You know, and, and here again, we got smarter, and, and uh, some company came out with air shocks for trucks. And we started putting air shocks on the right side of those trucks where you could pump air into them and stabilize the right side of the truck, which kept it from rolling up on that front tire. So there's there was a lot of things that, you know, we little things we learn over the, over the course of time and, and uh, just had a good time at it. I mean, it and, had to uh, just understeered. Uh, I mean, is that the natural? Because when you look at it, you think, man, this thing must just want to plow straight ahead into the corners. I guess let's talk a little bit oh, about yeah. the dynamics. Yeah. 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 Well, that had a, a KTA 600 Cummins in it, which the motor itself weighed 4,000 pounds dry. And, uh, but it was one of the biggest motors you could put in a street truck at that time. And, of course, we had to have it. But um, the truck was really heavy. So they did allow us to set the motors back 12 inches and lower them 12 inches so it kind of put the center of gravity down in the truck a little bit better wasn't the the top roll wasn't as bad but you still you still had a tower issue and then we finally got away from the tandem drive yeah and they left us run a single axle with a tag axle on the back so that kind of shortened up the radius, the turning radius, you know, between the axles. So that took some push out of the truck, too. So as things progressed, you know, we, we kept getting a little bit smarter about it for a bunch of guys that didn't know much about racing. And um, it, it just made for some really competitive racing. So, you know, and then years down the road, they went to the what I called the, the overgrown modified trucks, which pretty well got away from the stock frames, the stock suspension. You know, we were running W-Links in the back, just like dirt-modified cars, wow. pullover springs and handmade uh, frame suspensions and things like that. And, uh, I mean, those trucks were down to 7,500 pounds. I really, I really, really enjoyed that truck that I destroyed up at the Pocono. <laughs> um, I mean, ser- seriously, I did. And, and that, that deal that day, and that coincidentally was a crash between me and old Mike Adams again. But... Um, it just, uh, he, he got under me coming out of that last turn, coming down for the white flag and, and going down that front stretch. I made up my mind when we came out of that first turn, I would be leading that race 
when I went I went down in on him way too fast, and I don't know if he tried to pull a brake check on me or what happened, but of course I ran up over the back end of him, and I, him and I both went to the wall, and unfortunately I went through the wall and ended up down in the woods, but um, he ended up having a, a, a back injury out of that deal, but he, I, I really like that truck, and uh, I don't like he, he was a good guy. You know, hell, we went to uh, Nashville, I think like three weeks later, to wow. or not Nashville, Bristol, Bristol. Bristol. We okay. raced Bristol. We raced the trucks at Bristol, and uh, of course I didn't have a ride. You know, Mike calls me up and he says, "Why don't you come on down to Bristol? So I'll let you run my backup truck." So that I man's just the kind of guy Mike was. Wow. And uh, so I did. I went down because he, he had two race trucks. He had that that old junkyard dog, and he had a Peterbilt. And uh, so I went down there and ran that Peterbilt for him. But anyhow, that but that truck that was probably my favorite. And and I guess my my biggest disappointment there. We were actually going to go to the Bonneville Salt Flats, and Cum- Cummins was going to sponsor us to go out there and set a new world and speed record for a three axle truck. And, and of course, after I tore that truck up, that didn't happen. So I was I was really disappointed about that because I just it's hard to tell how fast that truck would win. Some great insight there from Charlie about the speed, the performance, the handling of these most unlikely racing machines. And he really is the most qualified guy to tell these stories these days because of the fact that his career began at the very beginning of the entire exercise when the trucks were at their most basic and ended in the early 90s when the trucks had become um, really uh, full-on race trucks. You heard him mention that the, the machines that he ended up racing in in the 90s were half the weight. They were lowered. They had much better suspension. They were, had hand-made ch- chassis. There was a lot of tubing in there. They were you know, big still and awkward still, but they were nothing like the early days of the trucks. And, you know, we can listen to Charlie tell us a little bit about the evolution of the series and a little bit about some of the damage caused when things didn't go right. And then the following year, we ran four races. We ran Rockingham. Uh, we ran Atlanta. And I, I can't, I can't uh, off the top of my head think of the other two, but I'm almost positive we ran four races the second year. Well, then the third year, I think we ran seven or eight. It just, you know, we kept getting more and more and more. And then further down the line, when when we started running the modified trucks, well, then we started getting some OEM sponsorship from Detroit Diesel, Allison Automatic, Chevron Oil. And, uh, God, we were running 15, you know, 16 races a year. Now, they were mostly short tracks. You know, they took us off the super speedways at that point, but... um, we ran a lot of dirt tracks and a lot of short tracks and some road courses. I mean, we ran up in Mossport, Ontario, Canada. Um, we ran that road course up there. And, of course, we were running a lot more short tracks, too, because it, they, they didn't want these trucks on these big tracks tearing these trucks up. You know, we, we were running a couple of tracks that NASCAR was running, and, and uh, they didn't like it. They said, you know, we were tearing up the asphalt and, and things like that. And. Which, when we did some damage, I mean, you know, people hit walls. We went through them. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's just, <laughs> like, I crashed up at Pocono and Mike Adams and I got together. I mean, that that was back when that was a steel plate boiler wall, and that wall saw us coming and just laid down and left us going through it. You know, just <laughs> but, um, you heard Charlie mention the fact that the series raced in Mosport, Canada on the famous road course up there. And, well, Charlie had a pretty funny story about that. 
picture this. You're racing a big rig on a very rainy day and things, well, even if you're Charlie Baker, sometimes things just don't go your way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we actually cut it. We had, of course, we had plexiglass windshields then. And um, we cut a hole in the windshield so I could see where I was going. And... <laughs> And I put these tear-offs on my helmet. Why well, I'd never put tear-offs on a helmet before, and I didn't know you were supposed to stagger them. And the first time I went to pull them off, I must have yanked 10 or 12 pull-offs. <laughs> and uh, here's all this air flying around the cabin. These blue pull-offs are flying everywhere, smacking me in the head. Just kind <laughs> like so ridiculous. But it, it was a good time. We had fun up there. We started that race in the rain, and, and then as it went on, it quit raining, and then we ended up on a dry track. But... I spun off the track up there and got stuck in the mud. And in fact, I think Dick Myrtle ended up winning that race up there. But something I like, I like to mention here, you know, we talk about Mike Adams and him winning that first race. And, and Mike and I had a, a lot of duels over the years where he'd win, he'd finish, we were one and two a lot of times. Okay. And, and uh, old Mike, he just passed away here, um, I guess, last week or the week before. He had some serious health issues and, and he passed away. So, I mean, he's one of the last pioneers, too. I, I honestly, there's a lot of guys that were in that very first truck race down there that are no longer with us, and uh, I'm fortunate to be able to still be here and talk about it. And we're all fortunate to be able to listen to Charlie tell these stories. You know, he mentions Mike Adams, and as we're kind of winding this story down, and make no mistake about it, the, the sport of, of the Great American Truck Racing Series would continue on through the 80s into the 90s in various different forms. As we mentioned, the trucks have gone off of the super speedways really by the mid-late 80s, and they're concentrating on short tracks and a lot of dirt tracks and also some road courses. But it bears mentioning as we're rounding out this first two years of 1979 and 80, and especially with the the mention and the nice tribute there to Mike Adams that Charlie just gave us, this is the way the sport was evolving over the first two years. This is audio from the 1980 race broadcast from Atlanta. It's an interview with Mike Adams, and he talks about the differences between the truck he raced in 1979 and the truck he would race in 1980. And yes, Mike Adams would end up winning this race back-to-back because the guy was so good, as Charlie just told us, but it's a really interesting thing to listen to him talk about the changes they made, even over the course of just one year, which really was only two races. Listen to this. For a moment, let's review how far trucks have come. Remember this truck a year ago? This was old 97, a 1965 GMC, and everybody laughed and giggled as it huffed and puffed its way through the first half of the race. It was driven by some guy from Seneca, South Carolina, that no one had ever heard of. He made some most unusual pit stops in the course of the day. And again, the choreography of his pit stops brought a few giggles to those that were here to watch the event. But lo and behold, when the day was over and the smoke had cleared and the tires had blown up, old 97, driven by Mike Adams on recap tires, found himself in victory lane. And after it was over, he drove the oldest truck on the retread tires back home. This year, he's back with a new truck. And earlier, Brock Yates took a look at it. Mike, some major changes since I talked with you here last year in victory lane, especially this fancy new truck. Come on down and show me a little bit about it, will you please? As you can see, we have a different style of seat in this truck. We have a window net in this thing to keep your arms and head in in case of an accident. The air horns have been taken off the top of the cab, moved down here. How about that engine? Well, the engine has been 
move back approximately 12 inches and lower about 4 inches for better weight distribution. How much horsepower? Well, it started out as 430 horsepower. Right now it's in the neighborhood of 700. That ought to be enough. No, that's not enough. Some boys are running about 1,000 out here, I think. Uh-oh. It's that really cool constant evolution of racing. It's a fascinating thing. It's fascinated me for my whole life, and it continues to fascinate me how people learn incrementally how to do things just a little bit better and better over the course of time. The 1980 season would be another successful one for Jim Donahoe and the entirety of the uh, the Truck Racing Association. The end of 1979 um, really was a celebratory mood in this sport because it was like uncovering a, a, a treasure you, you kind of thought was there but didn't know. When they uncovered this want, this need, this love that people had to watch these trucks race, Jim Donahoe really hit one out of the park. This, a 1979 December story from American Trucker Magazine entitled Doing More Than Ever Imagined begins like this. The world's first two bobtail races now passed history. With this young and heroic sport, as ATRA President Jim Donahoe calls it, had its debut earlier this year, it was met with skepticism, outright hostility by the government, equipment manufacturers, racetracks, and even by some truckers. But what's happened since then? Looking back on the June race and then this last one in Ontario, we can see that much has happened, and all of it good. A pattern of benefits for the -the over-the-road trucker is starting to emerge, and there are three areas in which changes are starting to become more and more apparent. And the three areas they talk about are safety, with the fact that you just heard Mike Adams saying, hey, uh, you know, we put a window net in this thing, we're making some upgrades there. There was actually a company called Steering Control System out of Los Angeles, California, that had developed a system called TrueTrack that was installed on trucks, and it was designed to be... uh, It it was designed to help the driver maintain the ability to steer if they had a blowout. And the Steering Control System company was brilliant in the fact that they installed their system on every single truck for free. Normally, it would cost about 400 bucks, but as a marketing exercise... They made sure that like every race truck had this product on it, and uh, ultimately it was endorsed by the racers because they loved it. Uh, and I quote the story, In Atlanta, a few drivers had steering control issues, but by the race time came in Ontario, almost every truck had the steering control system's true track installed. The word is spreading rapidly up and down the highway that this is a system worth investigating. It also increases tire life, gives better mileage, and improves traction on slick and icy roads. Drivers at Ontario had nothing but praise for the system, And really, I think it's the first example of somebody using this particular series to help them sell a product. Ultimately, Drydeen Oil Company would be a huge part of this series. Detroit Allison, uh, rather Detroit Diesel and Allison Automatic. Of course, Detroit Diesel at that point owned by Roger Penske, the racing guy, saw the benefit. Um, You see Cummins involved later on. Really, by the time you get to the mid-late 80s, you have basically every major name in the trucking industry involved in this sport. Manufacturer interest began to grow once people knew it was safe. And finally, the image of the trucker, the image of the trucker that was so much at stake by the Teamsters and by the Department of Transportation was very much positively grown. Quoting the story, when asked how their lives had changed since Atlanta, the most common answer among racers was not much, but certain things have changed. Many drivers are now recognized in their hometowns no longer as just truckers. Suddenly, they were truck racers and folks were looking at them differently and with a more positive attitude. Their friends and neighbors have become more interested in who the truckers are, what they do, and what their problems are. It's about them. Finally, truckers now have a big-time, big-money sport to call their own. Just about every any vehicle that flies, floats, or rolls already has one. Everyone but trucks did, but that's different now. 
Their promoters are learning a lot from Atlanta and Ontario. Rules will continue to change, becoming tighter and more specific. Weak areas will be strengthened. There's talk of breaking the trucks into classes. ATRA is looking at all areas and working on them. As with any new sport, only experience will smooth out the wrinkles. Names from these first races will go down in history. People will talk about them for years. Already, race talk, including doing a farmer, meaning getting into the wall, and farmer, Lemon, Bickle, Jacobs, Adams, Baker, and all others will always be the first. Many, many more truckers will come off the road to follow as they have. And as they do, they'll be helping all the truckers back on the highways who are awaiting their return. In the meantime, all truckers are better for it. All's well that ends well when it comes to the end of the 1979 and 80 years in the world of the American Truck Racing Association and Jim Donahoe. What about Charlie Baker? Well, he would go on to become, as I mentioned earlier, the winningest driver in the history of the American Truck Racing Association. He is the winningest big rig racer of all time. He won on dirt tracks. He won on short ovals. He won on super speedways. He won on road courses. Quite simply, Charlie Baker is the best big rig truck racer who has ever lived a Richard Petty slash kind of Babe Ruthian uh, career of success in this sport. And I will let him talk about that right now. Well, uh, yeah, um, a lot of the guys, you know, got competitive real quick. Of course, they're comfortable in the trucks. You know, they, they ran them up and down the road, and um, they just kind of fell into the racing thing there. You know, we were all we were all in the same pocket as far as experience was concerned, in my opinion. So, you know, there wasn't really anybody that, that was outstanding. Yeah. You know, as far as dominating the races and stuff, I mean, Mike had won his share of races. I had won my share of races. And and fortunately for me, I ended up winning more races over the whole circuit over the years than anybody else did. But but I was in it longer. Yeah. You know, I was in it from the beginning. I mean, I, I was kind of like, I'll, I'll coin the phrase, I was the Richard Petty of NASCAR and truck racing because, you know, Petty had all those wins, but he was in it longer than most everybody else was. And, and I was in this longer than most of the guys. I mean, a lot of guys fell by the wayside. New guys came on board. And so, you know, I had the esteem pleasure of saying I won more races than anybody. But, but I was in it from the beginning, too. Nickel on the outside. Charlie Baker on the inside. It's wheel to wheel out of turn number four. Five trucks running inches apart as they come down into the main straightaway another time. Still wheel to wheel. Somebody blows a tire here, and you're going to see one big wreck. That's right, Ken. But also, you know, we've never seen an engine blow in one of these big diesels. But now that they've really stretched them, getting a 1,000 horsepower out of them, I think anything could happen. Let's watch. H.M. Kelly Kenworth is now in front. Charlie Baker, New Oxford, Pennsylvania, at the controls. Three deep as they battle back there for the second position down the inside. Number 97, that's Adams, last year's winner, getting up into the surge for the lead here. Still pulling away is Charlie Baker. Remember, they have to be very conservative in the way they drive these things because they don't have a racing tire, and that has been the issue with truck racing right from the beginning. Falling back into fourth is Adams. He made a thrust for second as they continue to swap positions up in front. Coming back to the line, it'll be Jack Sheffler running in second. Charlie Baker is on the point, and over 30 competitors all running well at the start of the Great American Truck Race. And so that brings us to the end of our show. I hope that you have learned something about the origins of this most uniquely American motorsport that is now exported across the globe. Australia, Europe, 
and still here in the United States. Again, not perhaps with the profile it had during the early 1980s, certainly not with the government opposition, the the sponsor opposition, the mechanical opposition that really defined the early days of organized truck racing. It defined really Jim Donahoe's approach to life, that colorful promoter, over-the-top, able to take on these incredibly powerful entities and basically spit in their eye and have his race succeed anyway and ultimately kind of have a lot of those people come crawling back to him asking to be part of the series. It's a great kind of American American success story, the likes of which that we don't really see a whole lot of anymore in terms of motorsports. It's a different era. It's a different world. I want to sincerely thank Charlie Baker and Berserko Bobby Dorr for taking the time to talk with me and give us insight that otherwise we wouldn't have gotten about this series and about its history. These trucks have fascinated me since I was a kid. I distinctly remember as a you know seven, eight, nine-year-old little guy flipping on the TV. It was American Sports Cavalcade covering the race from Dover, Pennsylvania, or Dover Downs, Delaware, I should say, the Monster Mile, and a guy named E.J. Utley spinning a Max Superliner out right on the front straight and smashing into the wall. And I watched that entire show just mesmerized. And it's uh, something that a clip that a lot of people have probably seen. I think this is stuff that a lot of people might have known existed, but they didn't know any of the inside baseball regarding how it got going, what happened before that first race, how the first race came off, all the opposition, and then, of course, the crazy mechanicals and the sensations of racing these full-size big rig trucks at over 150 miles an hour. It is awesome stuff. I am super glad you listened. I hope you hung all the way into the end because Charlie and Bobby really did provide some incredible insight into this awesome, unique sport. Thanks for listening to the Dorkomotive Podcast. Make sure you check us out on dorkomotive.com. You can check us out also on Tee Public If you want a Dorkomotive sticker, you want a hat, you want a shirt, you can get that stuff at Tee Public. Just search us up at dork-o-motive, and you can get your Dorkomotive gear there. We'll be back soon with another episode as we tackle more neat mechanical history, maybe something to do with racing, maybe something to do with military, who knows? Stick around. The Dorkomotive Podcast ain't going anywhere. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is brought to you by Gear Vendors Overdrives. For decades, Gear Vendors has been producing the highest quality, highest horsepower handling overdrives on the market. Easily installed behind a variety of manual and automatic transmissions, a Gear Vendors Overdrive is a transformative piece of driveline technology that takes even the hardest core 3,000 horsepower street machines and turns them into highway cruisers. The drastic increase in drivability and fuel economy are only a couple of the benefits that a Gear Vendors Overdrive unit can offer you and your hot rod. Check them out at GearVendors.com. And remember, GearVendors is the only overdrive that's guaranteed even while racing. Visit GearVendors.com to learn more.